Hey everyone, this podcast is with Tom Karadza. Yes, Tom, you know Tom, right? I asked him to do this podcast because I wanted to sit down and chat with him about certain things that have been on my mind, about the economy, housing, inflation, how to get ahead, and really just trying to figure out more about our society and the system that we're all operating in, the matrix, if you will, uh, the rat race, some might say, fiat clown world, the Bitcoiners might say, whatever you want to call it, basically the lives that most of us are born into. It was a great chat. I probably complained more than I intended to, but I feel lucky to have people further along on their journey than me like Tom or Nick to vent frustrations to and get their feedback from. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this chat. Tom is great. I got a lot out of it and I hope you do too. I've learned a lot from Tom, Nick, all the Rockstar coaches, Rockstar members, and all the professionals plugged into the Rockstar network over the last few years. You know, those are other people you hear on the podcast all the time. And it's a true blessing to have plugged into this ecosystem. That's the way it feels to me. If you're looking for answers in your life to the big questions like I was and still am. How can I protect my family? How can I become wealthy? How can I escape the rat race? How can I get my time back, build multiple streams of income, quit my job, pursue my real purpose? All these big questions. I have found answers to a lot of these questions from the people that I've met in this group, not just theories, but real practical results. And here is exactly how to do this type of strategies. If you want to learn more about this group, just give us a phone call at 905-338-6964 extension 210. Ashley or I on the membership team here will pick up the phone when you call and answer any question you have about the Rockstar Inner Circle or connect you to a Rockstar Investing Coach to answer any questions you have uh, specifically about real estate investing. So just call us 905-338-6964 extension 210 to reach Ashley or myself. And I'm happy to chat with you guys. Uh, Hope you enjoy this episode with Tom. Thanks. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, I'm live with Tom Karadza, and we're flipping the script here. I'm hosting Tom, and the reason is I have a bunch of questions I wanted to ask Tom. We always kind of have these conversations in the office. They are, I think, meaningful conversations, so I just wanted to get a microphone in front of us and see if we could get some of these uh, recorded for the masses because Tom always has great answers on some of this stuff and I'm always asking random things. So I have a whole list of questions. It's a bit of a different style podcast where I want to go through some of these because I want these specific answers. Um, you have enough questions for three days. Yeah. So number one, <laughs> let's start with what's freaking you out the most about our economy right now. Um, yeah. First of all, your questions are great here. Like just scanning this list, these questions are kind of can go deep, but I guess if, uh, if to tackle this particular one, what's freaking me out personally about the economy is that I don't think most people understand the amount of debt that we have. And because they don't understand the amount of debt that we have, they don't understand the amount of inflation that is going to come our way. So I like the way that Greg Foss always breaks it down where there's $4 of debt globally to $1 of GDP or $1 of economic activity. And if that's the case, if you grow the debt, 
at like 3% interest because you're paying interest on debt. Everyone who has debt, you're paying interest on it, whether it's a Visa card or you know you borrow from a bank, you're paying interest on the debt. If that debt globally is growing at like 3% and the ratio of debt to GDP is four to one, then the GDP or the economy must inflate at something like 12% to kind of keep pace. And which means there's a heck of a lot of inflation coming our way. And most people are not prepared for it. Do we have that same debt ratio in Canada, debt to GDP of about four to one? Canada is, I haven't really looked at Canada specific uh, numbers on GDP. We should look this up. But uh, Canada sometimes will report its debt inaccurately. So what Canada will do is Canada has some of its um, pension fund investments in equities, which is not common in the G7. And because they have that, by the way, they did that because they were falling behind on how much money they needed to raise in the future to pay off to pay some of the Canadian pension plan, the Quebec pension plan. So they've invested in equities. And what they do when they report our debt as a country, they will often use the words net debt. And when they use the words net debt, what they're doing is they're taking all the investment that we have in future obligations that we have to pay out that are currently sitting in equities and they deduct it off our debt. So then Canada will come out all the time and say, oh, compared to other G7 countries, our debt is actually really good relative to these other countries. But the only reason it's good is because they took money that is to be used to be paid out for future obligations that we've already committed to people's pensions and they're deducting it off our debt. That it's kind of bullshit. Because that's debt to the public. That's money eventually owed. That's owed. That's money's owed. That's not a net positive to us. That's money that we owe other people. That's subtracting debt from debt. Yeah. And, and the only reason they're getting away with it is because they've allowed that investment to be put into equities. That they're saying, oh, well, you know, we have these like stocks, we have these equities here. So we'll deduct this off the country's debt because we have these investments. But those investments aren't our money. Those investments are money that we owe to other people already. Mm-hmm. So I much prefer to look at our gross debt. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know the, the exact ratio um, of our gross debt to, uh, to our GDP. It's like 120% or something like that. But, but if the world is that four to one ratio? Yeah. Then it's well. You're taking government debt, private debt. That's a when I say four to one ratio, you're taking all debt. Okay, all debt in the world. Where you you just asked me a question about Canadian debt, so it's different. So do do people's individual debt? How does that contribute to this? Because more money needs to be created to bail those people out from paying their debt. All debt has interest to be paid. All debt. So if all debt around the world adds up to four to one. of debt for every dollar of economic activity. It doesn't matter if it's government debt or personal debt or business debt or what it is. All debt needs the interest to be paid. So all debt is growing at a certain amount of interest a year. Okay. So all this debt is accelerating now and it feels that way. Mm -hmm. Like things feel more. Because there's just so much of it. When you get to the level of debt that we have now, especially the last, I guess, 15 years have really layered it on it just accelerates because it's there's just so much as you as it as as the interest is due on this it compounds like so heavily like think think of that 4 to 1 ratio for every 3 if if we just generalize the interest payments on the $4 of debt globally at 3% then 4 becomes 4.12 after 1 year now, if every dollar of economic activity, how much would it have to grow by to add 0.12? It would have to grow by 12%. Well, how does the GDP grow the way it's measured? It inflates. 
So we need 12% inflation in the global GDP just to keep up with the interest payments. Like we're generalizing here strongly, but I mean, that's just at a high level. What freaks me out the most is that people don't realize that we need 12% inflation or we're not going to be able to have the economy keep up with the growth of debt, in which case the whole system collapses. There's a point where the system collapses, where there's just not enough dollars to pay for all the interest on the debt. Do you think the central bank understands this? Yeah. Or central bankers in general? I think they do. Yeah. And is CBDCs their answer? Like when the system collapses, they have something else in place to kind of catch, catch, I don't know, the falling system? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, how does it actually transition? CBDCs isn't really much of an answer because all CBDCs are, to me, the way I'm understanding them are just, it's a cryptographic version of the existing fiat Canadian dollar. But it gives them even more control. It will allow them to push money out into the economy and bypass commercial banks if they wanted to. I don't know if that's the way the implementation is going to be, but you could have the Bank of Canada saying, here, Anthony Molinero, get the app, the Bank of Canada app or the federal government app or whatever it is, and we're going to give you some universal basic income via a CBDC, which is just really a cryptographic Canadian dollar. And we don't have to go through the TD Bank or BMOs or Bank of Nova Scotia's of the world and put the money into those checking accounts. We're just going to put it into this app directly. Mm-hmm. So now they get to bypass the commercial banks and they could put in a time expiry on it and say, Anthony, if you don't spend this in 30 days, you know, it's expired. So that's like what other thing are they working on? Like what else is the alternative other than I guess just hyperinflation and just yeah, like everyone th- gets th- screwed? The, like, I think this is what freaks me about the economy the most is that this system, when all dollars in the economy are debt, like really the dollars that are in your pocket or my pocket, they're debt receipts. The dollars that are in your checking account, my checking account, in any business checking out, they're just debt receipts. They're not actual a commodity-based money that is an independent good in the economy like money should be. Like in basic economics, money should be the most saleable good, good in the economy, which is why for years gold was money. But then it gets co-opted by governments and they're like, okay, we'll just take the gold and we'll print off these receipts. And then eventually they just remove the gold and they say, okay, well, the receipts are no longer packed by gold. They're backed by like U.S. treasuries. So now what you've done is you've basically changed money from like a commodity good in the economy to a receipt on debt. So do things just have to collapse enough where the free market then chooses a free market money alternative like and that's your option that really people have correct I, I i really don't see an alternative when the system in itself needs more and more debt to survive when when the what we call money today is actually debt and then the the money comes into existence plus interest you literally need more and more of that money or more and more of that debt said differently right more and more of that debt to pay the interest If you reverse all this back and say the first dollar that ever came into existence in the Canadian economy, if if we look at it in that way, the first dollar came into existence when it was printed, but then it came in as debt. So it was like a dollar plus interest was owed. Well, if there's only one dollar, the very first dollar that came into existence was borrowed into existence as debt. And then we owed interest on it. If you and I were the lucky ones to get the very first dollar, where do we get the three cents or the 10 cents or the 15 cents to pay the interest on that first dollar that came into existence? Because remember, all money is borrowed into existence the way our system works right now. 
So where do we get that extra three cents, 10 cents, 15 cents, whatever the interest payment was on that first dollar? Where do we get that from? If there's only one dollar that was printed in existence, we have to go borrow more money to pay for the first dollar's interest. And now you have $2 in existence, but they both are out interest. Well, where do you get the money to pay the interest on those $2? Well, you gotta borrow more money. It just seems like such a big hurdle to get 90% of the population that wouldn't even understand the concept free market money to then actually choose free market money. Like just things seem like they would have to get so bad and so messy. Yeah, I, I agree. To the I point just, where someone's forced to like put their life aside and learn about something or. I know, with great pain will come great change. And I think great pain's ahead. And the question that you started with was what's freaking you out? I think there's great pain ahead. I don't know when it is, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, but I think that's what's freaking me out the most. We've forgotten. Look, when you go back to my parent, my grandparents' village in Croatia, and I see the way they were using horses to like extract the seeds from like hay or weed or whatever they were putting down and the horses would run on top of them on this hay and then they would sweep away the hay and then underneath would be like all these seeds they would collect and I to this day don't really understand what was happening there. <laughs> but something important was happening there because they did that like every fall. Well, we've lost that knowledge. I don't understand what was going on there. Why did they use the horses? What were they doing to that wheat to separate the seeds out with the horses running on it? Like what, I guess now machines have replaced that role. But what were they doing there? Like we've lost that knowledge, or at least our family has. You know, that when they would uh, take a, an, uh, an animal for food and they would kind of butcher up the animal, my family used to know how to do that. Now we don't. We've lost that knowledge. Knowledge is lost sometimes. And I think currently we've lost the knowledge or understanding of what is real money. Mm -hmm. We've lost it. And your only way people are going to be relearning that to me is with great pain. And that's what freaks me out about the economy is that it seems obvious to me that we're on a path of great pain ahead. I mean, it's already happening. The great pain exists now. Look, when I was growing up, one of my parents could work and produce a great middle, light, a middle class lifestyle mm -hmm. in Canada. That's gone. Yeah. Now you hear stories in, in the Toronto area that, you know, two people working can barely make ends meet. One person, like, forget it. Like, you can't pay rent in a car and it's too much after taxes, rent, paying for your car. You, can, you don't have anything left. To me, we're already in this phase and now it's accelerating. Yeah, that frustrates me because, like, I work probably four jobs, you could say. I work my day job here. I'm doing six property fills right now two in Barrie, four in St. Catharines. I manage seven properties up in Perry, and I manage my three properties. And it's like, all I'm doing is working, and it feels like just this losing battle. And it, oh. it's frustrating, and I'm not complaining about it, like I'm lucky to have these opportunities, but it just does frustrate me, especially when people, older people in my family, they're like, why are you working so hard? I'm like, that house that you bought, in Bolton, I'm thinking of a specific uncle, you know, because he has always given me shit for, you know, always been, always been busy and working. It's like that house you bought in Bolton 25 years ago, like that's so out of reach to me. Like I have to rent here in Oakville and then I have to buy properties like an hour and a half away in St. Catharines just to feel like I'm keeping up. And I'm like, it's just frustrating because he doesn't understand that. I think the the shift, but there's been a huge shift. Some of the questions I have is like young people, 
like, what do you do? Like I got, I'm lucky that I got into to real estate. Like I'm in now, so I'm protected. I have nothing to complain about, but other young people, my age, um, you like a lot of them are going to be left behind. They already can't get into the real estate market. Yeah. And I'm not saying like you can't, if there's, there's a will, there's a way, like I get it, but it, I also recognize it's tough. Like you got to sacrifice a lot to be able to get in for certain people. So other people, high salaries, sure. It's not as hard, but like if real estate's not an option, what is their option? You know, like obviously we're, we're Bitcoiners. We believe in that. Um, but it's, is it starting a business? Like I'm thinking of a friend I have who's a nurse and it's like, she's single, she's not with anybody. So she can't, you know, partner up finances. And it's like, she should just be able to be a nurse but she has to try to become a real estate investor, a stock investor, Bitcoin investor, like start a business. But it's like, what if she's yeah, this not is the, entrepreneurial? This is the great crime of this system. It for, why can't we just have someone make a, uh, have, be a nurse, save money, and have a beautiful life and retirement? Why is that so wrong? And no one asks that question. You're right, I'm agreeing with you 100%. So what does she have to do? Well, now she has to be a macro econ economics master and understand what's going on with debt and GDP and interest rates. She has to understand what's happening with the money system because if she doesn't, her purchasing power is going to evaporate more and more every year. So 10 years, if you think it's bad now, map this system forward 10 more years. I know, it's scaring me. I was thinking this past week because I was kind of sick and still am a little bit, but um, where can I go to escape this? Cause I was just like, I'm, I ground myself into the ground. Like I was, I'm still sick. Okay. The, th the positive in what you're doing, you should know is that you are buying You know, you have some property, you have some Bitcoin. Now you have to be a bit patient as well. Yeah. So you're doing the right things yeah. with patience. You will be rewarded, you know, and then it'll be, you'll be rewarded at different levels. Like maybe over the next three to five years or so, the properties as the fiat dollar system, the Canadian dollar system really requires more and more money printing to just survive. The properties in dollar terms might go up way more than we even think today. Not so much because the real estate's changing, just the value of the currency. So you might be, I hate to say rewarded, but like quote unquote rewarded with like, you'll be able to refinance and pull out some of those dollars and you'll be able to then maybe put them into other things, maybe like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of straddling both things. And as time passes, you will be rewarded from, for holding these types of assets, especially in this type of system. That's my opinion. So you, you are kind of setting yourself up. So don't get so frustrated that you're like, holy shit, that life sucks. You are kind of doing in to me in this system, the right moves. Yeah. Which I totally get. I'm just, I guess scared, I think for everyone else, mm -hmm. like other people in my life that just don't, they don't get it. Me like too. What's happening. Yeah, me too. It's, 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 it is the biggest thing going on in the world. And you know, what's the, the saddest part about this is that everyone is so busy working to pay their own bills and raise their families and start a family and buy their first car. They don't have time to pay attention to this stuff. You're so busy fighting the inflation. You don't know how to actually beat the inflation yeah. or take advantage of the inflation. And it's hard to save up enough money to your point about the nurse who you would need to buy a property or buy some Bitcoin or something like that. It's hard enough to save some money to really do anything about it. The beautiful thing to me about um, Bitcoin is you can buy $10 at a time. You can yeah. buy $5 at a time. So we finally have something that is ultimately scarce, completely global, permissionless. We can all participate in it. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. 
And this is a solution to the existing system that most people don't pay attention to. Most people are just looking at Bitcoin for Canadian dollar or fiat dollar returns. Whereas I'm looking to protect my purchasing power by owning something that has the ultimate scarcity globally, where the rules cannot be changed, or at least it's very, 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 very difficult to change them. And to me, that's protecting my purchasing power. Is there anywhere you can go globally to escape inflation, other countries around the world? Not that I know of, because all countries, like even if we were to take a country like, you know, maybe that's foreign to me, at least like China or something, they're all like have a, a, a central bank type system where the currency is the government has the power to print. So like, look at Argentina, they have endless problems. I was hoping look you'd have Venezuela. an answer I was like, I don't think there is. No, I, I can't th escape it. I think the US dollar petrodollar system has really, you know, it's kind of like this weed that grew and went all around the world and kind of captured the global economy to such an extent where I don't know, like, I don't know a country in Africa where you can, you know, avoid it. I don't know in Europe where you can avoid it. And unfortunately, humans will distort a system to its own advantage, especially politically, because politicians, if they can control a money printer, they will. So, you know, they're there. If you're in power and you're able to print new dollars or new, new dinars or new whatever, you you're not going to give up that power too easily. So the system, it's, it's kind of wild and wacky. It's like you almost have to bow down and, you know, acknowledge that holy shit the people that put this into into place really put into place a, like a system that is serving their needs because if you're at the top of it you kind of win mm -hmm. okay it's, so, it's tough to battle so the matrix is like such a good analogy right because we're all plugged in our life force yeah. is being spent yeah. <laughs> working like slaves yeah. to you know pay the tax man through either inflation or actual taxes so it, it is very matrix like when did you feel like you mentally had escaped the matrix and how did you how did you do that i think it was i don't know if you ever completely feel like you've escaped the matrix we all live in this kind of system the way it is but at least you recognize it yeah at least you recognize what's happening and you've mm -hmm. positioned yourself to benefit from it mm -hmm. i think it first started for me when i was driving to my corporate job on the 403 from you know where i lived in oakville to where the office was in mississauga and i was stuck in bumper to bumper traffic every morning and then nick and i had already owned real estate properties in hamilton and these properties were producing monthly cash flow and we had owned them for like two or three or four maybe five years by then something like that and they were already starting to appreciate i think i remember nick saying hey you know this property that we, we bought for like 250,000 he goes i think it's worth like 290 now or something you know 310 something like that and i remember thinking this is weird like i'm driving to work in bumper to bumper traffic to go to this job but i have these properties that are in the opposite direction and by the way the highway was clear in yeah the opposite i direction. love that visual yeah it was like totally clear i'm like why don't i just drive over back to hamilton and try to figure out how to buy more of these properties they produce monthly cash flow and they seem to appreciating so much that if this continues they're going to appreciate faster than my annual salary here like there might be a year where it's like they've appreciated in that one year faster than my entire annual salary and I think that's when, and that didn't happen for a few years after, but then eventually it did happen. <laughs> and I, I, I remember thinking like, what am I doing? Like if I own assets, 
they seem to benefit my life so much more than this kind of job. So that was kind of the start of it. And then it was like, well, how do I buy more of these things? And then how does the, and then once you buy real estate, you fortunately or unfortunately determine that the biggest risk that you ultimately have is interest rates. Cause you can mitigate all these other problems. You can mitigate vacancies. You can mitigate the structure of the building. You can try to like do some risk mitigation and all these other things with real estate, but interest rates are completely out of your control. Right, because you can buy insurance. You can buy insurance now on properties for vandalism and vacancies and like what are floods, like whatever you, you are worried about, you can find insurance for it. So then the only thing that you can't control is interest rates. So then when you own real estate, or what happened to me was I realized, oh my gosh, like what's this interest rate thing? Like why are they changing these interest rates? Because this is a big risk to me as a property owner. And then you go down like the global macroeconomics, you're like, oh, there's like this central banker, Bank of Canada. What are they doing? Oh, why do they always copy the US? Oh, why does everybody always kind of seem to copy what the US does? What are those guys doing over there? Oh, what the heck? This is a global reserve currency. What is it backed by? US treasuries? How does this work? And then you end up going down into this rabbit hole and that's when you seem to uncover the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's when you seem to like, who issues this debt? <clears throat> Wait, the people who issue the debt aren't the government itself? Like, think about this. Sorry, think about this. You and I start a country. We conquer an area in Ontario. <laughs> so, say vacant land, there's nobody there. And no, uh, I don't know, some crown land that we just put flags up and say, now this is our land. Rock, so imagine, Rockstar land. Imagine we yeah, make a country called Rockstar land. And you would actually get people moving there. Yeah. The well, I don't know. Let's see what kind of land it was. But anyway, we have the, Imagine we had, we, you know, we created our own country. Yes. And then you and I said, well, I guess we need some money, you know, for, for this country. Now, if we weren't going to use good commodity based money, like what was ever available in this little economy in this country we created around as the most saleable good as money that naturally emerged as money, then if we were kind of slightly corrupt, we might say, well, we'll print these like we'll print these dollars. Yeah, it's just human nature. If you yeah. have access to a money printer, you're going to print money. Yeah. So now why would we give that ability if you and I created the country? to this outside service called a central bank that was controlled by this committee or these people that were not us. And that's the system we have here in Canada and the US. Why wouldn't you and I have a treasury that we could create the money and issue it into this country we created? I'm not, I'm not condoning this, this idea, by the way, like it's horrible, but why did you take it to the extent where we have the country, we, the people of this country have the country, but we're going to give the ability to create the dollars and price the dollars through interest rates to this other third party, this like central bank. Why? Like, why would we ever do that? Why, why are we doing that in Canada? And it's kind of sold to us as this thing like, well, they're a bit more independent because, you know, they'll be more responsible than the government and stuff like, why are we doing that? And then if we had debt, we could just say, oh, we're not paying the debt back. Why do we have to go to a central bank or the U.S. to the Federal Reserve to say, well, you know what, um, can you forgive some of that debt, you know? So how did we get, do you know how we got the Canadian Central Bank? Like, I know the big conspiracy behind the Fed, the Federal Reserve creature from Jekyll Island. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not a conspiracy. Like, that's fact. Yeah. So in 1913, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Act or Federal Reserve System came in to place in the U.S. And then around the world, other central banks 
kind of matched what they did. Bank of Canada, I think, really you know, when I look back in history, you can find dollars that say the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce or Royal those, Bank with, of Canada. Those dollars, those were receipts of gold exactly. that were on deposit. They were actual receipts banks. for gold. That's the way I understand it. So it did start with the gold, like the all, gold exchangeability. Well, it all went before that. There were central banks in the U.S. in the 1800s. Then they went away. So it like kind of always changes. But there was this period where banks in Canada seemed to be issuing their own currency directly based on the deposits they that they held. Yes. And then around it seems to me around the 1930s or so, the Bank of Canada just started issuing the currency and these bank receipts started disappearing. Yeah. And that's where we got hoodwinked. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Like I understand you're just saying no, that for yeah, fun, but like, this is so not, either. this is, this is just factually what happened. But going back to the analogy, then like, why do we have this system where we have the central bank? Like what, if you, you and I created a country, why wouldn't the treasury that we controlled issue the currency? So there's this extra layer of fuckery that just seems like it's not needed. And it creates this whole distortion to make everything see, seem so complicated. Economics isn't complicated. You produce a good or a service. I assign some personal value to that. You, you and I exchange either through barter or some good naturally emerges in the economy that's the most saleable good. Yeah. And that becomes the money that most people use to basically you know, handle price ratios between goods and services. But instead, we have this system that... We have this, like, think about, think about this. We have like a dollar based system. You know, I read this somewhere. I, I can't remember who to give credit to, to this to, but if you're an engineer and architect and you're building a house and the unit of measure that you're using is like a meter, you build a house, you know, based on a meter. But if that meter changed in like actual size, how would you ever build a proper house? If day to day that meter changed the length you couldn't build a house because the blueprints that you built, when they go to build the house, if the unit of measure has changed, you're going to build a wacky house because like, it's not going to work. You build a crappy foundation. Well, in an economy, our unit of measure is the dollar, but it constantly changes based on the interest rates on what that dollar is quote unquote worth. So how do we build a sound functioning economy when the unit of measure is always kind of changing in value? It doesn't work. Can politics have any impact on this? I know it's all operating in the same system, so it's like unpreventable. The system will do what the system's gonna do, but can certain political moves at least slow it down? Yeah, I think so, because if you spend less money in the country, you're gonna have yeah. less inflation. Like less debt? Yeah, it's, it's just tough now when the debt's getting to be such levels that like Canadian debt is greater, gross debt, I guess I have to say gross debt, is greater than our, our GDP annually. So we have such an amount of debt that it's, it's hard. But yeah, for sure, a politician yeah. can come in, cut less people, cut, sorry, make the government smaller, cut people from the government, spend less money overall. It'd be tough to get elected on that platform. Which, exactly. Because all just then the symptoms of the system is that everyone needs help. Exactly. So you vote in the guy, which is help. why going back to your first question, what freaks you out about the economy? I'm like, all paths lead to more and more inflation, all of them. And that's why when I talk about real estate, which has been monetized through this, like you get, I mean, real estate is getting an uplift in dollar value because people are playing def defense and, and buying properties. And Bitcoin, people think, oh, it's just like this guy just can't stop talking about Bitcoin. I'm like, well, the reason I'm talking about Bitcoin, it's one of the only things I've ever seen in my life 
that allows Anthony Molinero to own that will protect him against the debasement ahead. But people are so impatient and measure Bitcoin with the dollar price today, they don't see the big picture. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question I have. Like a, a big part about real estate going up in value is your dollars actually decreasing in value. So it takes more and more of those dollars to buy the house. But with like out of whack supply demand dynamics like we have in Ontario, can you can you chalk up part of the real estate going up literally due to just simple supply and demand? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like I think we have like a perfect mix here where like the supply and demand in Ontario is causing, you know, more and more people to want the house, which will make the price go up like any market. Mm -hmm. But then when you layer in more and more dollars flushed into the economy, it's like kind of pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah. And then the ability to buy with pretty good leverage here in Canada. Yeah. Went to buy with leverage here in Canada, put 20% down, borrow the rest, you buy the house. It's kind of like one of the, you know what the, the nice thing about real estate, which I think, you know, will upset some people is that it's the nicest way to use the system against itself. Because if you've convinced yourself, maybe like I have, and everyone's going to have a different opinion, that there's going to be more and more fiat dollars kind of printed. Well, if I can put 20% down, borrow the other 80%, to me, that's like a four to one short on the Canadian dollar. Like I'm banking on the dollar going to be worth less and less, yeah. which means the debt I currently hold is going to be easier to pay in the future because there's going to be more of these dollars flushing around. Yeah. So that's a huge point. Like you're paying your loan back with dollars that are worth less and less, but we don't actually know what that'll be. So it's kind of vague. We just know that we are benefiting from that. But the and other there's thing- there's no guarantee. There's no 100% guarantee either. That the dollars you're going to be paying it back are going to be worth less? I mean, I think the odds are very high, <laughs> but there's no way to absolutely guarantee that. Exactly. So that's kind of a vague one. So it's harder to lean on that one as like a solid support thing. But you're also buying on 5X leverage. Mm-hmm. Like you're putting 20% down to buy mm-hmm. the 100% of the, of the value, which you then get to benefit from. But that's, nobody talks about that when they're like, oh, the housing market only goes up 6%, 7% yeah. a year, but the stock market goes up 10%. Well, you're buying on 5X leverage with the house. It's why, and it's why it's so, one way for you to get ahead. So if it's 6%, it's actually five, t- it's actually 30% a year, mm-hmm. but nobody ever talks about the leverage aspect of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. But may, So maybe if you're buying a REIT, and and the and you're not buying on leverage and the your REIT portfolio goes up 6%, but if you're buying a single family home like the sweet spot like you talk about where the big investors aren't buying and uh, and it's hard for a lot of people to buy that single family home now, you're in this sweet middle spot where you're buying on that leverage where the 6% is actually 30% appreciation, mm-hmm. let alone all the other benefits. Yeah. 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 The leverage is so nice. I, I kind of use an example all the time. If let's just use a hundred thousand, even though a property around here is not a hundred thousand, if you put 20% down and you buy a property for a hundred thousand dollars and that property goes up 10%, then the property is quote unquote worth $110,000, but you only put down 20, $20,000. You've just made a 50% return. Yeah. 10 grand on 20 grand. Yeah. On your money because of the leverage. Yeah. And if you know what's going to happen to me in this world, you think that these properties are going to inflate more and more, then it seems like it's worth it. The risk being you have to make sure you can carry. So as interest rates rise, can you survive through the ups and downs? But if you can survive the ups and downs, it's the one of the very few ways to build yourself a future and outpace the inflation and kind of get out of the matrix. Mm -hmm. And another huge thing that I got from you, Nick, is the importance of marketing. 
your property because that sets you apart and that allows you to get good quality tenants in there that allow you to carry that property. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it's huge. I'll never, I swear, I'll never forget this. I convinced, I convinced Carol to get, uh, spend $8,000 on a mentor. And I had already flipped property and I had already owned rental property. And Nick and I bought the student rental property by Mac. And I paid $8,000 at the time. I swear that must've been all the savings that we possibly had. Maybe I even put the last part on Visa. I don't know how I paid it. And Carol, you know, being so like supportive of me, she kind of went along with it. And one Sunday, we didn't get this mentor's phone number. You can never call him. You could just meet and you met. And I think we got like four private sessions and he drove us down the street where Nick and I had already owned a piece of real estate. And he said, look at all the for rent signs on this street. He goes, this is a sign that the market's saturated here. They can't get students for these properties in these rooms. So this is a street as an example, you wouldn't want to buy on. And my jaw hit the floor. I knew I was immediately ripped off because we owned on that literally that same street. The guy didn't know it. I didn't tell him. And Nick and I, through marketing, understood how to drive a lot of students to the property. We would have like 30, 40, 50, 60 students on the front lawn. We would fill all the rooms in that property in one showing in one Saturday afternoon. And the other landlords just didn't understand good marketing. Maybe they didn't keep their properties in good order and there's all these other factors as well. But because they didn't understand good marketing, they had a lot of for rent signs up. And this mentor that I had paid for was telling me how this was a bad area to invest in. And that's when it really clicked like, wow, firsthand knowledge is so important. And if you are a good marketer of almost anything that you do in the world, real estate business, otherwise, you're always going to be okay. And that's why, you know, to me, marketing became such a big deal for Nick and I over, over time. Yeah. That's a crazy story. Um, I saw an article maybe a year ago and it was like this disgruntled businessman in the Toronto star and he had built a successful business, worked his ass off at doing it. And he was pissed off because he was like, I could have just bought a bunch of houses and I would have done, uh, I would have been way more profitable, made way more money and not had to like be in the trenches building this business and learning actual business skills. Not like you don't do that with real estate, but let's be serious. It's different from an active business. Like it's way easier. And, uh, and I just remember thinking like, you're right. Like you are a victim of the system. Like it is totally discounting all of your business skills that you built and all the hard work you put in when you could have just bought these houses, but it's also a bad business. Like you didn't recognize the, the environment. market. You didn't, you didn't play to the environment. Like, so I didn't really have sympathy on that part. I'm like, you made a bad business move, which is so stupid. I know it's still like a victim of the system. Yeah. I feel, I do feel some sympathy, but so yeah, I can I, see why he's yeah. pissed off. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, yeah. yeah, you had to hire people, inventory, yeah. logistics, marketing, you had to do all these things where if you just buy property, you're right. It's, 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 it's why to me, like, why does rockstar even exist? Rockstar, like you're a smart guy. There's other many people here at Rockstar are, are really smart people. Why are we all in this business? We're all in this business because people ultimately have to play defense with any capital that they are able to accrue or save. So they look to kind of like put it somewhere where it's not going to lose value. And Rockstar exists because we help people do that. But imagine that Anthony Molinero could be unleashed into the economy to do something that is productive, like look at some, I don't know, health improvements or do something in the fitness industry or come with yeah. a new product that was valuable to people. We would all be, to me, better off. But Rockstar, like, I, you know, I love the business that we do because I feel like we're helping people. So it sounds weird, but Rockstar unfortunately exists as a product of a distorted economic environment, which forces people to play defense with any capital that they are able to save. 
And then the system, the, econ the economy or the media don't understand that. And they will literally blame investors for buying properties without understanding that it's the economic environment that's forcing people to buy real estate so they don't lose purchasing power of any savings that they have. So yeah. the, 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 everything distorts. Like our, our, our business really shouldn't exist. There should be no need for this type of business. My current real estate partner, Adrian, and I spent two years on the weekends drinking all these different coffees, trying all these different powdered supplements, <laughs> all these sketchy powdered supplements. That's some nice caffeine. 50 plus, like sick to my stomach from drinking coffee to try and develop this pre-workout coffee product, which I love, still love, still wish I could like release. You got to bring that to market. We almost brought, like yeah. we were there. We had bags, like everything was ready. It was our first business venture when we were in your young 20s. And then we just met one real estate investor who was living off full time off her properties. Yeah. And we we're like, let's buy a rental. So we bought one. But then it was like, oh my, this, we're making way more money from this one property than we ever will with this coffee business. Maybe we could have yeah. made more, but it's just not, it didn't feel guaranteed like the houses did. So then it was like, let's buy another one. Let's buy another. And then we just kept kicking the coffee thing down the road. And then I started filling properties. I was getting one month's rent. And it's like, how many bags of coffee do I have to sell at a $3 margin? To, to make what I make filling one property, which I can do in a couple of weeks, like pretty easily. And, and then it gets worse, Anthony. What happens when you have profit in that coffee business? How do you protect it? Yes, we abandoned <laughs> it. So now it's just real estate because it's generating all the money. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. But here we are. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? We wish we had your coffee. Yeah. Apparently we drink coffee in this place. Maybe you can, you know, hey, it sounds like you have a lot of free time on the, on the weekends. I'm laughing. Like, I'm just laughing at all this just because it's so ridiculous. And I guess, listen, one of the biggest ways that once you understand the system and if you can, you know, get some property and over time you do get the benefit. Now that I'm 50 years old, I do have the benefit of owning some properties. It does give you some freedom. Mm -hmm. So it is one way to kind of use the system against itself, because if you understand what's going on, you do pick up some properties. And over time, as long as you can survive the ups and downs of an interest rate gyration, you're going to have some equity in theirs and probably some appreciation, even more maybe than you thought you'd have. And then you can pull out some cash from these properties and kind of live a life that maybe, you know, you didn't think you could live or has more freedom or more finance or more peace of mind lets you sleep at night and just have some financial peace of mind. Yeah. So. And so that's what that real estate investor that I first met who's living full time off her properties told me, she's like, you're building this business. Like it sounds cool. Hopefully it hits, but that's more of you're trying to hit a home run. And she's like, you get these little properties. They're like base hits and it builds up an asset base. And then that allows you to take further business risks. So I would just get one. And now you have this this asset, at least as a base, yeah. growing in the back. And she was right. She was 100% right. And it's, it's, it's interesting that you didn't think she would. Most people hear that and think, oh, real estate's risky. And it's funny because you didn't. So kudos to you for not thinking, you know, that. I think people, a lot of people will look at it and say, oh, I'm not going to get into it. Real estate's just too risky. Well, I had nothing to lose. Yeah. That was my advantage as young. And so mm -hmm. I, I could lose everything. Mm -hmm. It is right. easier to get in when you're, you have nothing to lose. Yeah. Another question <laughs> for you is, uh, is the world changing faster now than it ever has in your lifetime? Oh, a hundred percent. Like it feels that way to me, but I'm yeah. 27. Like, no, what do I know? So fast. You know how slow things were in the night? Like, look, when I had to do an essay in the nineties in university, Actually, compare this to what Aiden just went through, my son at Western. When I did an, an essay at uh, university in the 90s, the internet was just coming out. 
somebody actually tapped me on the shoulder of uh, one of my good friend's brother. And he goes, hey, do you want to come to this computer lab? And you had to like sign in to the computer lab and book time. And he had this computer and it was facing against the wall. We went to the back row and he's like, I'm going to show you something. And uh, he goes, do you want to see Cindy Crawford in a bikini? <laughs> and I remember like, yeah, okay. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say no. Yeah. And he did something. And I guess this was the internet that I had never been exposed to yet. And uh, up comes this picture and it was coming up so slow on the screen. Like, I guess you didn't go through this phase because you're too young, but the it would, pictures and images. Would My move. generation grew up with a high speed. Yeah, yeah. Porn. It would come up it's so slow. slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just had this picture load and then it would like, it would have a problem and we, it would reload and it would start loading again. So you would see like her hair, then her forehead, <laughs> then her nose. And then it would like so have a problem suspense. and it would restart. Yeah. And you're just like, there's eight guys at this point just waiting you <laughs> yeah. know, to see this, uh, see this picture load. And uh, that was my first exposure to the internet. Anyway, um, when I had to take an do an essay, I would have to go to the library and go through microfiche. I don't know if you remember what that is. It's like newspapers on this weird film that you would look through on this weird computer screen and take out books from the library. And I remember having two bags going to my car of books because I had to write this essay. I probably had like 20 books and I had to do it in the next 48 hours. So I took out so many books to make sure I had enough information for this essay. And uh, so you'd go to the library. You'd look up the books, then you'd walk through the aisles trying to take the books off the shelves. You were hoping they were in stock because if the book you wanted was not there, you couldn't get the information. So maybe there was a key book that you couldn't get and you would have to come back the next day and pray somebody returned it to get that book you needed for your essay. Yeah. yeah. So then I would have to haul it all to my car. Then I'll have to drive home, haul it all into my house. So I would have to start up a computer. And I remember having, uh, I think it was called WordPerfect. It was like a microprocessor, like Microsoft Word, but it was called WordPerfect, I think by Corel, an Ottawa-based company. And then, you know, I'd open all the books and I couldn't search through the books like you can now uh, digitally. I'd have to like read. You couldn't control F? <laughs> no, I couldn't. And so you have to do this essay, type out this essay. Then I had to return all the books. Now with chat GPT, you can put in the question of yeah. like, hey, give me an 800 word essay from three different sources with, you know, uh, differing views in the tone of voice of Anthony Molinaro or Joe Rogan or whoever and spit this out and it comes out almost instantly. So the rate of change now is accelerating to the point where I just don't know where we're headed. Like it's incredible. And when you hear people, really smart guys like Jeff Booth, Michael Saylor talking about where we're headed with and some of the stuff, Elon Musk, and even they are taking pause. You, you don't know where some of this is, is all going. Like what happens to so many jobs? It wasn't too long ago that people were like, you better become a computer programmer because you know all jobs are gonna be in computers. You better learn how to com you know, uh, program. Now with chat GPT, I know people who are not computer programmers who are just asking for the code to be produced for them and kind of like p hacking together different apps. And they're not even computer programmers or have any type of computer science degrees. So yeah, things are changing so fast now that, uh, and, and this is another thing like, when you look at the way the economy is changing with technology, how is an old, slow-moving, fiat-based system based on debt going to match with a technology-based economy that is moving at the speed of light? Do you really think there's going to be programs five and six years from now that are going to need a monetary unit and they're going to say, 
okay, I will wait until the next interest rate move on Tuesday that is dictated by some guy who's listening to some other guy from the Federal Reserve on how we're gonna price this money. And we're gonna have to look at this country's debt to understand if we take on this new currency unit and then put it into our digital program that it doesn't lose value over the next five or six years. Like, do you really think that the technology is evolving to a pace with the economy that it's gonna use a fiat-based system the way it is? No. Well, there's no, there's just no way. So you're a free market guy and have studied the economy and know how it works like intimately. Um, I know it a little bit. I don't know if anyone knows it intimately, but sure. I would say so. But most of the population, I don't think are free market people based on who we're voting in. And yeah, I don't think they are. So for you, it's obvious. It's an obvious move that people are going to freely adopt Bitcoin. I don't know. I guess people, I guess to your point earlier, it has to be so bad yeah, that that people are forced into adopting some sort of free market option. It has to be some so sort of change. escape. Yeah, I think it might have been Jeff Booth who said it recently. But like, to make great change, you need great pain. It's not going to come without great pain. Like if I saw my aunt in Croatia, exchange like I was sitting standing next to her in the market when she was exchanging dinars for German marks. People were still, not everybody was doing it. So some people were exchanging dinars for German marks illegally because they were, um, the dinars were losing value so quickly that they wanted German marks. And that wasn't though everybody, there was a whole group of the population there that wasn't doing that. So some people were, maybe the early adopters were going to German marks because they saw and understood that the dinars were losing value. But a whole bunch of people didn't. And then when the currency ultimately failed, a whole bunch of people were left with the dinars and their savings got wiped out pretty much completely. I mean, my other aunt who lived in a village there, the the way I was told about it was that when she ultimately did get to go to the bank with to get some new currency units, they didn't even count whatever currency she had at dinars. They just had a little plexiglass box and they said, just fill whatever you have there. And, you know, however much you fill there, or if you kind of fill it to the top, we're just going to give you like a bit of this new currency. And that was it. So she was holding it. So it's not like I think there's this beautiful transition where people see like, oh, my gosh, this currency is going to, you know, hyperinflate away and we should get this new currency. I think it's just some people get on board earlier. Others don't get uh, get on board at all. And it's unfortunate. But, uh, Do you ever get overwhelmed thinking about all this stuff? All these big, massive changes, knowing they're happening and how fast everything's going? Because I do. Yeah. And no, I think it's just human nature. I think it's just, it's like, to me, this has just happened through history so many times. Like nothing that you and I are talking about is new. The Romans were like, you know, scalping off little bits of coins. They were inflating those coins to the point where the Roman Empire, some people believe that they inflated that currency away and raised taxes so much that Rome fell. And the citizens of Rome went out and, you know, started farming land outside of Rome because there was nothing left in Rome. And literally Rome fell for several hundred years until there was a new currency unit coming out of Florence and Venice and the Ducat and the Florin, I think out of Florence kind of brought back a trust, you know, an economy where people could kind of trust each other again. Um, so I, I think this just, this is human nature. Unfortunately. Do, we, do we, I guess, just operate with the technology we have, like with the gold coin, if that's the best technology we have, aside from people scalping off pieces of it, like it operates pretty well, but then gold goes away because we have this like fiat, 
slash digital system that like actually does operate well as like a medium of exchange, but not as a store value. And then I don't know, something like Bitcoin comes along and then that technology enables different things. Yeah. Like, like we're just in the parameters of technology, I guess. Whatever we have in front of us. I think so. All money has feels that way been me. just technology. Like, you know, before gold got minted into a coin, like you could think that that effort was technology being able to mint it into a coin and stamp it with a certain stamp where somebody saw that gold coin and trusted it that it was like one ounce or 37 grams or whatever the amount of gold was. And they're like, oh, I will give you my five cows for that <laughs> that one coin because I trust that coin. And that, that trust was largely due to the technology that was able to you know, coin the gold and stamp it a certain way. And now the technology is evolving again we're caught in like a beautiful time of history that has like major change. It's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. 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 Um, at your age now, what have you maybe seen as some of the consequences of people around you kind of sticking their head in the sand and ignoring all this stuff over the past, let's say 30 years from when you were 20 to now to the age of 50. Cause it feels that way to me. Sometimes people in my life, like just, mm -hmm. Either they're too busy or mm -hmm. they just don't care. Like about I think learning some of this stuff and I'm just like, and then I'm like grinding myself to a fine powder and I'm like, am I like missing oh, something right, here? No, you're on the right path. Cause like, I guess, yeah. So I'll answer in two ways. First, you're on the right path. I remember being 35 and I went to a couple buddies and if he's listening to this, this one buddy's going to know what I'm going to say. And I remember thinking at 35 that I said, Hey, he told me, he said, why are you pushing so hard? slow down, take it easy. And I remember saying, well, we are now at 35 years old, closer to 50 than 20. And I said, do you remember being at the bars, spending all the money that we did at the bars on the weekends and stuff? He's like, yeah. I'm like, what didn't it feel like yesterday? And he's like, yeah, it did. And I'm like, 50 is going to be here in the snap of the fingers. So I want to lay down the foundation today that when I hit 50, I can live the life with the freedoms that I want. But then aren't you giving everything up from 35 to 50? Sure. But I mean, the alternative is then don't do it. And then you asked what I see with people who stick their heads in the sound. Cause let's say then that those people stuck their heads in the sand heads in the sand and then they didn't work hard and lay down the foundation that they wanted for later in life. Mm -hmm. Well, now they don't have the freedoms that I see people who did take action have. They're worried about money much more than perhaps I am or other people are. So their life becomes very limited in that they can't travel as much as they want to travel. They can't live maybe where they want to live. They have to spend a lot of their days worrying about how much money they have in the bank, where they're going to make their next dollar and how much money they have. Is it going to last long enough? I mean, those conversations when you meet people who are older, maybe older than 50, but like into their sixties and stuff, that's big. That's what everyone talks about. So sure. Give up. Yeah. Enjoy life. I'm not saying don't enjoy your 20s and 30s. Live in the moment. Enjoy, like, you know, the way you described what you're going through right now and you're working hard. Looking back with reflection now, like, that's part of the the journey. It's like, enjoy all those moments. Take some fun, fun pictures. Pause in between there and go on a trip here and there. So, like, enjoy this process. And is it kind of maybe crappy because you have to do these three jobs to get to where you want to go? Yeah, but it is what it is also. And you're aware of it. So kind of enjoy, enjoy it. Have some laughs along the way. Mm -hmm. And know that you're building a foundation that at some point you're, it, if you're right, 
it's going to benefit you. And those who stuck their heads in the sand, really, they don't live a life that I would want to be living. It comes down to everything. It does not just money, nutrition and health, you know, especially at 50 years old, I, I'm just talking, you know, I don't want to name names, but to, to some people and they're like, well, I finally have to like, you know, get back to my weight that I was 20 years ago. And you know, it's, it's not like they have problems, but they're like, damn, I really shouldn't have quote unquote, let myself go over the last 20 years. And so you put your head in the sand about nutrition, fitness, relationships, money, family kind of comes back to get you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of lightly debate this uh, with my girlfriend sometimes about like, you know, why balancing working hard now versus enjoying now and trying to find the right balance of it. And, uh, and I guess it comes down to the assumption that you are going to live, let's say a long life or let's say till 80. Yeah. yeah. Because you know, like your timelines change. If I was terminally sick, would I be working my three jobs? And I, if I had a year left to live, Hell no. Like, hell no. I'd be doing everything I can to enjoy my last sure. year. So I guess I am operating on the assumption that like, you know, I will be around. And I think you do have to, I guess, operate on that assumption to be able to think long term. Yeah. And I think some people wait way too long to start enjoying stuff. Like Nick and I bought a property in Croatia when I guess I was 38 or so. That cost us four rental properties, four Hamilton rental properties that we could have purchased at 220000 that are now worth anywhere between 650 and 850. And, and when did you, would you say you started your journey at what age of kind of like really getting your shit together and sacrificing uh, now for the future, building up, buying those properties? I know it was in your I, 20s. 20s, yeah, I guess there's different answers. In the 20s we started and then maybe in my, uh, you know, I quit my job at 33. So maybe that was like the next evolution of it. But in my tw late 20s, I think like really from 26 to 30 started buying properties and then um, d doubling down on my education of like, wait, how does this work? Like, what is, how does this money system work? So that was an education period. And then maybe go taking another step in my early 30s to walk away from my corporate life to say, okay, listen, I'm going to do things a little differently here. And then around the age of like 38, we didn't have much money. That was like, well, I'm not going to your point. I'm like, I'm not going to wait until I'm 50 to today or 60 to enjoy life. There's this property that happened to come up it was going to take the amount, all the money we had to buy four properties. That wasn't that much money because you could buy properties for a lot less down back then. <laughs> okay. So this wasn't a lot of money, but it was all the money that we had. Um, and we bought the property and we started going there every year for a month. There's a, a few summers and not too long ago, I was only doing two and a half weeks because of Aiden's soccer and different, th different things, but it was pretty much a month for every, and I did that since I was 38. So I think you can answer your question about you can enjoy, you can, you can build for the future yeah. and still enjoy right now. And I'm not saying I'm perfect that by any means, but I definitely didn't say I'm going to wait until I'm 50. It's like now we bought another vacation home up in the Blue Mountain area. Could have waited another maybe five years to do that or 10 years, but why? We want to live now, enjoy now. So I don't know, there's this like weird balance. Um, with baby boomers aging and them being the primary owners of real estate in Canada or the Western world, do you think eventually they're going to die? Someone's going to have to move in. Does that put a depressing um, price impact it, on, on it, the houses to now allow maybe young people a chance to get in? It can, but in areas like Toronto or greater Toronto area. No, because of the immigration. There's just so much. Yeah. There's just so much population growth here. Maybe in some Northern Ontario towns. Sure. 
maybe there's a big change from living in the city of Toronto to going, you know, outside to owning land. And, you know, so if there's big trend changes, but in this particular area, I don't really see that as a issue, a, too big of an issue. That's a good point. Maybe. But I mean, the pop, listen, Canada still has a relatively good healthcare uh, system, uh, education system, which people seem to value. So they want to raise families here. So people come here. You and I both know like Canada is kind of a weird spot. You meet people from all over the world here, South America, Asia, Europe, everywhere. People are here. Africa, people are here from everywhere. So I don't know. Unless that trend reverses, that'll be something we're watching for sure. And it maybe it'll change the composition of the real estate that you want to hold. Because if you see an exodus from this area, it might be a sign where it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to have property here long term, which is why I like the Bitcoin real estate mix. Because the real estate in this area, I understand the supply demand fundamentals plus the low interest rates, which gives me a boost to the monetary value of the real estate. The Bitcoin gives me global freedom. It's in the network. I can move around. I can access it from anywhere. I can control it. It's scarce, permissionless, immutable ledger. So the two together to me are like this magical combo. And I've never, you know, in life, I've always found that I want to look at trends and ride those trends. And I feel like I'm riding a trend of the fiat dollar debasement with real estate. And I'm riding a trend of technology improvement and a natively digital currency that's never existed before in Bitcoin. So now marrying two trends. So I'm like, wow, 10 years from now, this, this is going to look pretty crazy. Like, where does this lead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bitcoin has helped. Yeah. Um, a couple questions here from Aiden that I want to cover maybe just before we wrap. He has a question, uh, which I think is great. How do you communicate so clearly? I think it's something that I really admire about you is, is how well you communicate. And with podcasts, with speaking to people, just one-on-one -on -one with people, is this just a natural gift you had that has developed itself? How did you become so articulate and a strong communicator? Yeah, you're being too kind. I, I don't know. I look, I critique myself all the time. You know, I hear myself speak. And it yeah, but you must you... realize that you do have mm -hmm. a skill set to mm -hmm. communicate. And it is essentially all that you do mm -hmm. when you think about it. Yeah, I guess we're just all born slightly differently. I don't know. I went, I won a grade four. Um, what's that when you, in, you do public speaking? The speech? Yeah. Grade four speech contest? Yeah. I won my grade four oh, speech contest and I made it to the finals every year. Never made it after. Oh. Yeah. I had <laughs> bullshit topics that nobody cared about but me. So that's why every year someone makes it to the finals that talks about why you should quit smoking. Who the hell cares? You're in grade seven, first of all. You don't smoke. Oh. Why are we even like, yeah. it was yeah. just pandering to the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I still have that. No, I threw the plaque out. I had a plaque. The, um, so speaking, I don't know, but I know um, with the written word, it just comes from practice. Like I have someone told me, I think in the, my late 20s that I think, you know, words are sales and print or something like that. Someone just convinced me that like, <laughs> what does that, mean? Uh, that like words can be powerful and that, you know, words can in business can really be profitable. And that it's important to get good at the written word. And I think it's just became this thing that I thought I'm going to continue to write almost daily. I ha I'm not doing it daily anymore, but I went through years where I was, you know, writing blog posts and emails and books and reports and newsletters. And it's just thousands and thousands of words. So maybe actually writing has allowed me and putting presentations together has made me understand I don't understand a topic as well as I thought I did. And then it makes me go back and try to figure out 
the gaps in my own knowledge. So I think sometimes by teaching or trying to educate, you understand how little you understand of a topic. And then over time you fill in all these gaps and then you get really good at explaining it. So maybe the communication just comes from just practice, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm pretty, really critical. Like I look at some of the stuff I put out there, I'm like, holy shit. Sure. Yeah. I think anyone would be, um, last question here from Aiden, how do you determine prices as a service-based business? I guess because there's so much, I don't know, I guess it's still relative to products where you have competition and you have to kind of fit yourself somewhere along, along the lines of that competition. Yeah. Prices for products are determined by how good you are at creating demand. So if you have no demand for your services, you really aren't in a strong spot to dictate any price point. Sorry. You said, uh, for, uh, for products or services. Yeah. Which one? Or both. Yeah, got it. So it's why when people get into real estate as a realtor, there are many people who get into real estate, for example, they're not good at creating demand for themselves. So what do they do? They discount their commission rate as their selling point. They'll tell people, hey, I'll list your home for like, you know, not two and a half, two or not, you know, that person saying two, I'll do it for one and a half or I'm not doing it for one and a half. I'll do it for one or I'll do it for half or I'll do it for like almost nothing to just kind of do it. And uh, it's the weakest form of, of business. And it all comes down to your inability or lack of understanding on how to generate demand for your services. And when you can generate enough demand for your services, you can raise your prices really high. You can raise your prices. I mean, look at like something like chocolate. There's chocolate that you can buy at, uh, at Walmart for like a bag of it. I don't know, for like few bucks. Then there's chocolate. You can go to, you know, Purdy's or a high-end chocolate store and spend 50 bucks on a box of chocolate. Well, one place understands packaging and how to kind of wrap it up. It's probably very similar. Let's face it. It's at least a bunch of the ingredients are very similar. One just understands how to create demand for it. One doesn't. What about just pure quality of the product? Like I went to this bakery, San Remo bakery in Etobicoke. Mm -hmm. And because everyone's hyping this place up. So I was in the area, so we stopped off and it's like, you've got to park down the street. The parking situation's horrible. Then you walk up and it's like a lineup outside the door. To Where get is in. it? I got to go here. It's in uh, Etobicoke. I don't okay. know Toronto that well, but uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> off Royal York, maybe. <laughs> you know how to get there though. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll send you the name. Yeah, Google off Maps. Royal York. Yeah. Damn. Is, what Google Maps has done to the younger generation. People ask where me. Where is it? I have no idea. I just punch it into GPS. People ask me where my properties are in St. Catharines. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know the heart soul. Like, <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. I just put it in my map. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh it's terrible, no, yeah. but also it is terrible. Who the heck, who, who cares? I have Google maps. I don't need to know this information. Okay. Anymore. So what they have quality ingredients. So they anyways, <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, but it was really good quality. So I'm like, did they just, and it's been around for like 50 years, but uh, did they just stick with really high quality products for 50 years? And then that generated the demand. Cause they don't seem to have any crazy marketing going on. It's like, the marketing is just creating these products that people go bananas for, and then it hypes it up and people say, oh, place so, their cannolis are so good. You got to try it. Yeah. They're benefiting from 50 years and maybe, maybe the quality ingredients where they kept the ingredients at a certain level, other bakeries changed it. And then they got a name for themselves through word of mouth, um, that created this demand. Sure. But yeah, it but, almost but, seems like you can have crappy marketing if you have a great product. 
Yeah, whatever it takes. It's just you have to understand. I mean, like you can separate business into three levels. There's principles of business, strategies, and tactics. And most people will just talk about tactics, like change the price of this or do this on Instagram or do this on YouTube. Those are tactics. Strategies might be, can we do a multi-point follow-up system with clients in a very strategic way and offer enough value that they're going to walk in our place of business? We're going to use quality ingredients. We're going to follow up with them. We'll have birthday specials. We'll do all these things in a strategic way and layer in a little bit of Instagram and YouTube, you know, on top of that, sprinkle it on top. And then there's principles of business, which is how do you, how do you acquire a customer? What, let me break it out this way. I think this is one of my favorite Dan Kennedy things is that there is what market are you entering? What message do you want to articulate to the market that you're going to serve? And what media are you going to put that message into so that they see it? Now, those are business principles. So once you understand business at different levels, you can really start hitting on some of these things and then you can generate demand and that dictates prices. If you go back to the realtor example, if I'm really good at generating demand for myself, I don't have to discount my commission rate because I have three other people lined up to do business with me. It's like, hey, if you don't want that, Anthony, that's no problem. I'm busy. I got other things to do. This is my right. Take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. So prices are really dictated by demand. And if you have too much demand, what do you do? You raise prices. I mean, Rolex does this. They have limited releases. So they have a history of quality product. They have a market that they've curated. Well, why don't they just unleash like a million watches? Well, because they're building up the demand. They have yeah. some, skin. and it's so obvious that it's manipulated with these, with these. Yeah, well, they're smart at what they're limited drop. Yeah, well, it's like, kind of smart at what they're doing. So it's just their understanding business at a different level than kind of somebody else who says, "Well, my watch is quality." Like I have the better quality parts than Rolex. Yeah, but do you have the audience capture? Do you have the follow-up mechanisms? Do you have the deal? Like there's all these other things. So, you know, ultimately prices are dictated uh, to me at the base level at how good are you at creating demand? And if you were to reverse engineer demand, you have to understand principles of business. You have to understand strategies of marketing. And then you can start talking about tactics. But most people, like when they look at money or real estate or business, they're just looking at tactics. Like most people will talk about real estate at the tactical level, student rentals versus burr. They're not talking at macroeconomic level with interest rates and fiat dollar inflation, right? So they're not really understanding why they're getting some of the benefits of the real estate. In business, it's the same thing. TikTok's killing it. You got to be on TikTok. Well, they're not understanding that they're creating demand for themselves. And if TikTok, if the audience moves off TikTok to the next greatest social media thing, that demand may leave. You know, so it's kind of like always you're trying in life to me, whether it's fitness and nutrition, family and relationships marketing, money, real estate, you're always trying to separate out your lessons to three levels. What are the principles of what I'm doing? What are the strategies I can do to implement those principles? And then what tactics can I like sprinkle on top to really, you know, add some fuel to the fire? So that's kind of the way I, I, I think about things. It's why I like some of these, you know, some of these books, like they talk about this, some of this stuff. Do you want to just call them out here? Yeah. Some of the, the books that I, 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 you know, because I'm a geek and I like my books, some of the books that I like um, for different things that are important to me in life for business building and marketing. This one, The Ultimate Sales Machine by Chet Holmes, just a fantastic read on how to think about building an audience, following up with that audience, who's ready to buy, price points, that kind of stuff. 
um, fantastic read. And then this is one of Dan Kennedy's book, Direct uh, Direct Marketing. Um, so that's that's a, a great read. Safedine's books here because the first seventy two pages of this book is a, a great breakdown of the economy and how the economy and money has worked throughout time. And it gives you a framework and a context to understand what's going on now. And it's just the first four chapters. So like, I love this book, The Sovereign Individual. To me, you read it. Yeah. And uh, I forget what page it's on where it talks about like some e-cash and all this kind of stuff. But I think it was written in the late 90s, 98. Yeah, they predicted social media, cryptocurrencies, and uh, smartphones. Yeah, yeah, crazy, crazy. So Sovereign Individual, I think, is still applicable today for anyone who wants a bigger picture of what might be happening yeah, with... and then where those things are going, right? Exactly. That's I the, love this book. I just so love good. this book. I, mean, I remember reading... I think I read it in the early 2000s. I remember putting it down and thinking, I just read something really important. I don't know what to do now, but I read it. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that book's given me a lot of context. The, the Price of Tomorrow. This is like the... You know, Jeff Booth does like the best job to me at the intersection of technology and the economy and how a fiat-based inflation-based system really isn't going to work for a technology-based economy that is driving prices down where with an inflation-based economy that needs to constantly inflate the GDP. And this is two great forces. And then just from a personal development side, like how to win friends and influence people, because I think this is one of my favorite just personal development type books that taught me a lot and that read this in my 20s. Um, and it just always had a special place for me. So how to win friends and influence people. So just on the price of tomorrow, I, I heard a great Peter Schiff uh, podcast actually the other day. And, uh, he mentioned, uh, a thought on inflation that I'd never heard before, which was even if prices don't go up on a, on a certain product or class of products, that doesn't mean that there wasn't inflation because the market would have drove that price down had the money printing not happened. So even when products aren't going up in price, you have these deflationary forces from the free market pushing that price down way further than it would be without the inflation. So even when prices come down, they might have, they would have, not might have, they would have come down way further had there not been inflation. Correct. So, so it's like you're getting robbed. Let's say inflation rate was zero. You're still getting robbed because the whole point of capitalism is to make products cheaper, faster, better. Agreed. And I was like, ah, oh, that's such a good point. How does he not get Bitcoin? <laughs> He's he's hilarious. He is hilarious. So if you look back, how old are you now? 27. So 27. Holy shit. Um, So if you look back to your context or frame of reference, how long have we been working together here at Rockstar? Mm, I joined as a member when I was 23 and then joined the team and then turned 24 right after. And I'm about to turn 28. So about four years. Four years. So how do if you reflect back on that, how has your thinking of life, money, evolved or changed it's like yeah in what way i I have all this context i can hold a conversation with you about this stuff Mm. someone who's spent a lot of time learning educating Mm. people about this stuff and it's all a direct result of listening to you to other people as well like michael sale or guys like peter schiff yeah so many but really it's being immersed in this environment Mm -hmm. around you around nick around buying my own properties yeah it's just it's a night and day difference Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at 27, with all this, you're working hard, but you obviously just hearing you with some of the conversations that you've had with your girlfriend, it just, it's like, holy shit, like, do you need to be pushing this hard? So correct? 
because you're doing a lot. Yeah. You're doing some property management. Yeah, that's management, the number one criticism I, I would, yeah, I yeah. get from people in my life. Yeah, yeah. The, the one, I guess the one thing is, yeah, you do have to live in the moment and and, and relationships are really important. They yeah. are the most important. The, yeah, the most. The most. When shit hits the fan, all you have is the friends and family around you, right? Um but if you can balance maintaining that with laying the foundation for some of the stuff that you're putting in your life now, increasing your own skill set in real estate marketing and everything, sales, um, you're just setting yourself up for a really, really nice future. I guess if you had come from a family that had like all these assets, like if Nick and I had, then maybe you could be enjoying life maybe a little differently than now. But when you come from, I'm not saying that you don't come from a, a lot, Anthony. Yeah. No, I grew up middle class. I'm by yeah. no means grew up poor. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I mean, the middle class now, as it's priced now, doesn't give you some of the freedoms that you want. No. And so you kind of have to work hard to change your your your, your place in life. And that's kind of like, it's kind of like spinning a big flywheel. When you start to push it, it's really hard. But once you get the momentum going, you can keep it going much easier. And to me, at 27 with what you're doing now, you're starting to spin the flywheel. And in a few more years, it gets easier because there's some, some momentum. So you can push it a little easier. And then it really starts moving. And then it's, it's kind of really easy. You're just kind of keeping the thing spinning. Yeah, that makes sense. So Mike, I think you just need a lot of energy at the beginning to get things moving. Mike had a, a similar analogy to me where he's like, he's like, dude, right now you're in um, the rocket ship is launching. And he's like, it's so much force and so much energy to get out of orbit. But once you're out of orbit, it's like you just little bursts of energy to direct where you want to go. But you're you're floating. I was like, oh, man, it's helpful. It's totally definitely helpful. Yeah, to hear. I like it. Yeah. Um, one last question for Maiden, then we'll wrap. Sure. What is the single most important business and or life lesson from building Rockstar? Oh, geez. Um, I guess um, to always think long term. I think that's really served us well in this business. Not do anything for the short term money, the short term gain. Always think long term in business, relationships, with your investing. Everything is better with a long term context. If you listen to anyone who has really built anything, and has some managed to somehow by luck or work or whatever, accumulate some wealth. Actually, let me take that back. If, they, if they've built the wealth themselves, they always have long-term perspective. Like if you hear Michael Saylor talk, he'll always talk, well, 10 years, I think sometimes 10 years in the future, or sometimes I think 30 years in the future. And you know, a long-term perspective can really make today's decisions be the right ones. You know, um, so a long to thinking and planning and doing for the long term gain and doing nothing for short term immediate satisfaction. How long term are you thinking in terms of, um, let's say, your family? Are you thinking like your kids, kids, your kids, 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 kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't really think about it that much because some people want to leave such a legacy that they some they can leave a financial legacy to, you know, their kids, 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 that kind of stuff. And I don't necessarily agree with that because I think every generation should have the opportunity to find themselves. And I think if you leave, I mean, how many families do you know where people have been left a pile of money and you just look at what they do? They don't have a purpose in life and they have nothing to kind of like aim for. So um, I think more. Um, long-term in this lifetime, you know, that's kind of how I'm, how I'm thinking. I'm not thinking multiple generations deep. That's just way too, who knows what the world's going to look like. Well, it's going to be like all robots and, AI and stuff. No, I'm thinking in this lifetime. Okay. Kind of manage, 
kind of like enjoy the now, but plan for the long term. You know, like enjoy the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and everything. Try to enjoy the moment, but but always be planning for the long term. Yeah. Okay. I think we can wrap with that. Anthony, this was fun. It's good. You're a good guy, it's dude. Good. Thanks, man. You're doing great with these. You didn't pie. drink your uh, water. No, but I drank my coffee. Okay. I wish I had your coffee, but you decided to get into real estate and <laughs> coffee business. <laughs> yeah, coming soon, Jim Grind Coffee. Thanks, man. Okay, thanks. So thank you, Tom, for sitting down to chat with me and being so gracious with your time and your answers. The work and message that you share with people is much needed and appreciated. I know I speak for myself and many more people when I say that. And thank you for listening to this episode. As always, once again, you can give us a phone call at 905-338-6964, extension 210, to speak to Ashley or me about your desires around investing, learning more, or anything else. Hope to chat soon. Hope to catch you again on another episode as well. Thank you, everyone. Take care.